The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, we come to your word today, a hungry, needy people, God, often blind of our own shortcomings, Lord, but desperately in need of your grace. And so, God, pray that you would grace us today, that you would feed us today through your word, and that we would be renewed in our spirits and overjoyed in our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This past Monday, there was a Time Magazine article. And just to give a bit of a disclaimer, I want to let you know that as a minister of the gospel, I do not ever support publicly any political candidate, nor do I trash any political candidate publicly. I I promote Jesus um, as my candidate. And so just want to let you know, I'm not trashing anybody or, or trying to promote anybody by reading this article, but I think it reveals to us a human condition that exists in all of us. The name of the article is Maple Match Wants to Make Dating Great Again. And it says this, with certain Americans joking about or seriously looking into moving to Canada if Donald Trump is elected president, One dating site is trying to get in on the immigration action. The site, Maple Match, advertises itself as a facilitator for Americans to find the ideal Canadian partner to save them from the unfathomable horror of a Trump presidency. Its tagline, again, is make dating great again. Maple Match CEO Joe Goldman tells Global News that the site has seen immense traffic and big sign-up numbers in recent days. He goes on to say that at this time, we are currently waitlisting users and will begin matching as soon as we are able. When dismay hits us, when trouble hits us, we run somewhere, we flee somewhere, we go somewhere. Where do you run when your government fails you? Where do you hide when people fail you? Where do you medicate when leaders fail you? Where do you go when life fails you? See, this article is a reminder to all of us that in the midst of the brokenness of this world, we all go somewhere. The question isn't if we go, the question is where do we go? And so where do you go in the midst of the brokenness of life. Today we will see the prophet Samuel is in a very similar position as what I read in this article. If you would please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It is page 238 in the Red Bible, I believe, and page 369 in the Children's Bible. If you remember back in chapters 9 through 11, the prophet Samuel anointed Saul the Benjamite as the first king of Israel. Saul starts off as a strong king. He gathers the people of Israel together to go and defend their countrymen against the Ammonites. But from there on, there is this slow downward spiral. King Saul is sluggish in his mission to defeat the Philistines. King Saul oversteps his bounds by making a priestly sacrifice. King Saul makes a rash vow threatening the life of his own child. And then last chapter, Saul rejects the Lord's command to protect the people from the Amalekites. And as we saw, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. And the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and says, 
you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Because of Saul's continual rejection of the Lord while king, the Lord has now rejected Saul as king. And we read in the midst of last week the prophet Samuel's response. We read that Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. This was an appropriate response. Samuel was grieving. He had high hopes for the first king that that he would lead them faithfully in following the Lord. He had high hopes that this person that he's mentoring and caring for would love the people well and lead them in righteousness. But the reality was that he brought brokenness, that he brought rejection, that he brought destruction to the entire nation of Israel. The prophet Samuel's anger and disappointment and grief was completely appropriate until we get to today's passage. If you would look at the very last verse of chapter 15 with me, verse 35, and let's read through verse 1 of chapter 16. 1535 says this, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. Samuel's grieving over King Saul was appropriate to a point. But Saul's godly grief had become ungodly. The Lord comes and gently challenges his servant saying, how long will you grieve? The Lord knew that Samuel was dwelling in grief, that he was imprisoned by grief, that he was paralyzed by grief. Samuel's godly grief had become a godless grief. Samuel was so overwhelmed by the hopelessness of the circumstance that he failed to see the hope of a redeeming God. And so the Lord nudges Samuel and he says, fill your horn with oil and go. You know, I want to be very careful with saying this. But some of you need to hear this today. Some of you, God is challenging with this question. How long will you grieve? Grieving over the brokenness of this world is extremely appropriate. And in many ways, we must be sure not to hurry grief. But I'm curious, has grief imprisoned you? Are you dwelling in grief? Has grief paralyzed you? Maybe you are grieving over the political or moral climate of our country. Maybe you grieve over the failure or loss of a loved one. Maybe you grieve over the destructive actions of a leader in your life. Maybe you just simply grieve for the fact that life has not turned out the way that you want it to be. It is appropriate to grieve over those things to a point. And so today, God is challenging us with this question, how long will you grieve? And if this is where you're at, he's coming alongside of you, and he's saying, fill your horn with oil and go. Yes, it is good to grieve, 
but do not grieve as one who has no hope. Get up and go. Move forward because nothing, no king, no parent, no politician, no pastor, no boss, no leader can thwart the glorious plans of God's redemptive kingdom. You know, we deal with grief in so many different ways. We flee to so many different places. Sometimes we flee to our own pity party and we invite everybody, but nobody comes. Sometimes we flee to Canada or to lovers or to both if you have this website. But today God is calling us in the midst of the brokenness of this world to flee to the risen king. Before we get into the passage, I just have to make a connection for us that is extremely important. Today, the Lord is going to encourage the prophet Samuel to move on from King Saul and go to King David. And for those of you that are maybe not so familiar with the Bible, King David is probably the second most famous person in the Bible next to Jesus. His name is mentioned over 1,100 times in the Bible in almost 1,000 different verses. And the reason why David is so important to the nation of Israel and to the scriptures is because from the line of David is to come the king that is to rule for all eternity. And we know on this side of the cross that that king is King Jesus. 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is simply referred to as the son of David, indicating Jesus is the long-awaited deliverer and savior and everlasting king that David pointed to. And so as the Lord today points Samuel to David as the next king, as we look at David, he points us to Jesus as the ultimate king. And so in the midst of our grief, we must go. We must go to the Lord's chosen king. Go to the Lord's consecrated king. Go to the Lord's conquering king. Let's start with the first one. Go to the Lord's chosen king. Look at verse 1 with me. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. If you remember, the book of 1 Samuel is about transitions. It's about transitions of Israel from being ruled by judges to being ruled by kings. Earlier in this book, we saw the people crying out to the prophet Samuel, who was also a judge, crying out that they would have a king like the nations. And there was nothing wrong with their desire for a king, except they wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted a king that was tall, dark, and handsome, one that was ominous. One that seemed confident. And so the Lord comes to them and he warns them that if, if, they, if they crown a king of their own choosing, that this king will come and he will oppress them. He will take their children and make them servants. He will send them to war. They will die. They will be taxed. It will be horrible. And they say, we don't care. We want a king like the nations. They want a king of their own choosing. And so God does the unthinkable. He gives them what they want. He gives them a king of their own choosing. He gives them King Saul. And the consequences are exactly what God had said. 
and there is brokenness throughout the community. But now the Lord is sending Samuel to anoint a new king, not of the people's choosing, but of the Lord's choosing. The one that the Lord will declare to him. Look at verse four with me. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? They're afraid because the, the position of prophet carries weight. This would be like a police officer showing up at your door or, or the principal showing up in your classroom or your boss showing up in your office. It's a, it's a scary thing. And so they ask, do you come peaceably? And he, Samuel, said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Here Samuel is calling the elders of Bethlehem, as well as Jesse and his sons, to consecrate themselves, to come and meet with the Lord and make sacrifices to the Lord. The way they would consecrate themselves is through washing their clothes, washing themselves. They would stay away from dead bodies and from marital intimacy. And all of this was an external preparation so that they could also internally prepare to meet with the Lord. And so either before or during or after the sacrifice, we are launched into this anointing ceremony. Verse 6. When they came, he, being the prophet Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Somehow the prophet Samuel fell into the same deception the people of Israel were tricked by. He saw Jesse's son Eliab, and he saw that he was a man of stature, a man exuding confidence. And Samuel thought, surely this is the next king of Israel. One commentator points out that if, if he was to anoint Eliab as king, he would just merely have Saul number two. Fortunately, the Lord stops Samuel, and Samuel in humility listens to the Lord. And God chooses a man not based on his height, but on his heart. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, Oh, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send again and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means reddish or glowing, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. You know, this was probably the most important day in Jesse's life. The most important day in his family's life. A prophet has come to town, wants to make sacrifices to the Lord with his family, wants to anoint one of the sons as the next king of Israel. And David didn't even receive an invitation. From Jesse's perspective, his youngest son 
was too small, too low on the chain of command, even to be considered. God's choice is so different than man's choice. David was not Samuel's first choice, and David was Jesse's last choice. But David was God's choice. Because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. A couple years ago, we received our tax refund. And usually when we receive our tax refund, we like to buy something nice, a nice piece of furniture that we can keep for a long time. And so we decided one year that we would like to buy nice leather couches for our house. And so we went around and we went shopping for these different couches. And what was so fascinating to me is I would go into one place and a couch would be around $400. And then you would go to the next place and the couch, which looked almost identical, would be $1,400. And this happened time and time and time again. And I was so confused about it. I just thought maybe the, the places are just, you know, gouging the price out for their own benefit. I don't know. And so I finally went to Julie, our bass player, shiny, we call her. And we asked, because she's an expert at this stuff, we said, why is the same couch 400 one place and 1400 another place? And then she went on to explain to me something that I had no idea about that I'm still confused about, that there are different types of leather. Maybe you know this. There's bonded leather, which is very cheap and only lasts a couple of years. There's fox leather, which is also less expensive and less durable. But then there is genuine leather, which lasts a long time and has high quality. And you pay a much bigger price. You see, from the outside, for Tricia and I, all those couches looked the same. But to the expert, there was night and day difference. Because as beautiful as the outside of the couch appeared, many times the insides were not the quality that we were hoping for. The people wanted to choose a king based on outward appearances. But the Lord chose a king based on the inward qualities of the heart. You know, it's usually at this point that we say that you should judge people by their character, by their internal beauty and not their external beauty. Or we encourage you to focus on your inward beauty more than your outward beauty. And all those things are appropriate. But I don't think that's the point here. You see, as perceptive as you may be, as hard as you might work, you can never know the hearts of other people. You can't even know your own heart clearly. But the Lord can. The Lord has 20-20 vision into our souls. And the Lord can see a person's heart as clear as day. And it is on his vision that he chooses a king. In Isaiah 53, there's a prophecy of the coming king, the line of David, King Jesus. And it says this, Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus. Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was not as attractive as King David. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And he was esteemed not. He was not chosen by men. He was rejected by men. Surely he borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
in the midst of the brokenness of life, in the midst of grieving, do not trust your own decision-making. Trust the decision-making of the Lord. The Lord has chosen for us a glorious king, his own son, King Jesus. And all he was not beautiful on the outside, he was pricelessly beautiful on the inside. Do not dwell in your grief. Go to the Lord's chosen king. Go to Jesus, for he is acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. For by his wounds, we are healed. We must go to the Lord's chosen king. We must also go to the Lord's consecrated king. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Let's pause there. To consecrate something or someone, it's to set it apart for a special purpose. For example, if you are married or if one day you hope to get married, you know that you go through quite a routine, especially the women, right? The women will get pedicures, which I learned this morning is your feet, and you get manicures, which I learned this morning is your hands, right? And then you get your hair done and you have to pick out a dress and you pick out shoes and you get makeup applied to your face. You shave and all these things, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> to prepare for the wedding day. The guy rents a tux, goes, ah, ah, I'm ready, right? That's what the guy does. But in these ways, you are preparing yourself. You're consecrating yourself for a special and joyous celebration, for a holy purpose. Here, the Lord is consecrating David, setting him apart for divine service as the next king of Israel. And the Lord does this in two very specific ways that I want to point out here. One way that David is being consecrated for his kingship is through the spirit of the Lord rushing upon David. Now, from a New Testament post-Pentecostal mind frame, if you can follow that, we understand the Spirit of the Lord dwelling in people as a marker of salvation. But that is not what is happening here. You see, the sending of the Spirit in the Old Testament was often not a saving grace, but an empowering and guiding grace for the task a person had been consecrated to perform. For example, in Exodus 31, God sends his spirit upon a man to empower and guide him to make artistic designs for the temple. Throughout the judges, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon the judges to empower and guide them to rescue the people of God from bondage and to lead them in righteousness. The spirit of the Lord even rushed upon Saul earlier in this book, if you remember. It rushed upon him so that he could prophesy, but also to help him lead and guide the people in battle against the Ammonites. And so what we see here in verse 13 through 14 is that the Lord is taking his empowering and guiding spirit for the office of king and he is removing it from Saul and he is placing it upon this small shepherd boy, David. And so one way David is consecrated is through the sending of the Holy Spirit to empower and guide him in his kingly duties. The other way David is consecrated is through the anointing of oil. 
What is so interesting is throughout the Old Testament, this is a fairly common practice. People would be anointed with oil to set them apart for a special position. And what is so interesting about this is that the Hebrew word for anoint is a word used to form the word Messiah. And the Greek word for anoint is a word from which we derive the term Christ. And so you see, when we say Jesus Christ, we're not merely saying Jesus' last name. We're not merely putting an addendum on his name like Dan F. Jackson Esquire. When you say Jesus is the Christ, you are making a profound theological declaration. I'm afraid that we have heard this title Christ so many times in so many unreverential ways that his loss is profound impact on our hearts. During Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 8, Jesus is walking with his disciples along the road. And he turns to his disciples and he asks me, he says, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And I can imagine Jesus looking square in their eyes and asking, but who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this bold declaration Just four simple words. You are the Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we are not simply saying Jesus is an anointed one. We are declaring Jesus the anointed one. He is the one consecrated by the Father to be our Messiah. You see, Jesus, son of David, was consecrated for his kingship, not by people, but by God himself. In John 10, 36, Jesus tells the Pharisees that the Father has consecrated him and sent him into the world for this divine purpose, to give eternal life. Jesus was consecrated as king, not simply to be the king of Israel, but to be the king of his church, to be the king of his people, to be the king of salvation, to be the king of new life, and to be the king of all creation. And so, friends, this question is laid out to us today. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he merely a myth? Is he a legend? Is he a good teacher? Or is he the Christ? You see, our answer to this has eternal consequences. John 20 tells us the purpose of his writing of the gospel is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the seed of David, the Son of God, and that by believing that he is the Christ, you may have life in his name. Where else should we go in our grief? Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord's consecrated one. He is guided by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, that you may have eternal life. In our grief, we must go to the Lord's chosen one. We must go to the Lord's consecrated one. We must also go to the Lord's conquering one. Look at verse 14 with me again. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We already covered what that means. It means the Lord has taken away his empowering, guiding spirit for kingship. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him, being Saul. Let's pause there. This is the only place in the Old Testament where a person is noted as being tormented by a troubling spirit. And so we don't know a lot about it. And to be honest, it kind of provides some theological confusion If you listen to different preachers, if you'll hear 10 different options of what it might be. 
But this we do know. We know that the Lord is not the author of evil. And yet the Lord is sovereign over all evil powers. We look to the book of Job where Satan comes to the Lord and Satan questions about Job and and Satan acknowledges that God has put a hedge of protection around Job. And the Lord removes that hedge of protection to allow Satan to go and torment, torment Job to a certain extent in order to produce faith and to show faith and to show the glory of God. We look to the Syrian and Babylonian empires, these evil empires that went and tormented people. And we see how God had removed his hedge of protection from his people, that they could come and bring the judgment of God, bring them into exile, that they would repent and return to the Lord. We even look to the cross. We read that Judas during the supper had the devil put into his heart to betray Jesus. None of this is outside the control of God. And God uses all these things for his good purposes. In this case, he uses to bring us salvation. And so it seems as if the Lord is removing his hand of protection from Saul to allow this harmful spirit to do what it wants to Saul. And this is not only a part of the Lord's just judgment on Saul, but it is also a part of a divine conspiracy to get the shepherd boy into the palace. You'll see what I mean. Verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servant, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Of all the people in all the kingdom of Israel, who would they pick? David, the anointed king. You see the divine conspiracy in this? And you notice David's kingly qualities are are made known to all people. He says he's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Everything that Saul is not. Verse 19. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul And entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer, a a coveted position. Verse 22. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. How in the world does the playing of an instrument make a harmful spirit depart? Is this simply a case of music soothing the savage beast? I don't think that's the case because really anyone could have played the instrument. If you know David, you know that David is the most famous songwriter of all times. He's written half the, the hymns and the psalms. These hymns have been remastered, reworked, retooled, and resung thousands and thousands and thousands of times over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. 
I think it is safe to assume that as David played the instruments, it was also filled with singing. It was filled with songs crying out to the Lord, praising the Lord for his love. And so I think it's not too far of a stretch to assume that as David sat and played music to Saul, that he was playing songs of praise, songs of worship. David was singing the gospel over Saul. And as Saul heard these words of praise, the tormenting spirit left him as he was reminded by the love of God. You know, earlier we read that the Lord was with David. It's because of the Lord's presence with David that his ministry is effective in driving out this evil spirit. Jesus, the son of David, the graver David, had even greater powers over evil spirits. We read many occasions of this, but in Matthew 12, we read about a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute and was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed, and then they asked this question. Could this be the son of David? See, while David was able to make the evil spirits flee temporarily, Jesus was able to conquer the evil spirits permanently. In Jesus' ministry, time and again, Christ showed authority over these evil spirits, rebuking them, making them be quiet, casting them out of people, even sending them to their own peril. But the greatest triumph of Christ over spirits of the evil world, the greatest triumph of Christ over Satan was at the cross. Colossians 2 tells us about this. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, right where Satan wants you, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is Satan and the wicked spirits of this world, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, conquering over them by the cross. You see, Christ triumphed over Satan on the cross by taking on our sin. He triumphed over Satan by paying for it in full so that Satan no longer has any accusation to make against those who are in Christ. And yet our conquering king does not end there. As we fast forward to the end of times in the book of Revelations, the apostle John is, is having a vision of, of the end times and he is weeping because there is this scroll with seven seals that can't be opened. And one of the elders come to John and says, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then over the next six chapters, these seals are unpeeled and finally the seventh seal comes off in Revelation chapter 11. And we read, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why in the midst of grieving should we go to Jesus? Because Jesus is the conquering king who time will bring forth his glorious kingdom of redemption forever and ever and ever where there will be no more grieving and there will be no more pain and there will be no more sorrow. It will be a kingdom that will have no end. Let me end with this. This is a, I guess you call it a sermonette by Dr. Lockridge. And the title of it 
is this. My king is. And it was hard to cut out pieces. I cut out some. It's a little lengthy, but it's good. He says this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means or measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's infinitely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? I wonder if you know him. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives the sinner. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Well, this is my king. He is the key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He is the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. He won't let you go out of his hand. You can't outlive him. You can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. He had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There is nobody before him, and there will be no one after him. You can't impeach him, and he's not resigning. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And how long is that? And ever and ever. And when you get through with all the forevers, then amen. Children of God, where should you go in your grief? This king, God has provided for you, the great and glorious king, Jesus Christ, whose reign will last forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your kingship. We so don't appreciate it. We so don't understand it. We so don't grasp it. We take for granted that we have access to the king of eternity that we have access to the king of the universe, that we have access to a king who understands our sorrows, who understands our burdens, who has borne our iniquities, who loves us and cares for us. God, forgive us for running to other places when we have available to us the king of kings and Lord of lords. God, as we come to your table, 
As we come to the table of Christ, we're reminded of the great love of this king, that he came to lay down his life for his people, for his servants, to bring them into his glorious kingdom for all eternity. Lord, as we take this meal, may we be reminded that you are the only refuge that we have. You are the eternal refuge that we have. May we hide ourselves in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.